Welcome to the Zeitgeist 19 curated podcast, exploring the spirit of now through the lens of art and sustainability. Your hosts are Farah Piria and Elizabeth Zhovkova. Today we are speaking with Maria Teresa Alves, a Brazilian artist and activist currently living and working in Naples in Italy. Being exhibited internationally since the 1980s through her multidisciplinary practice, Alves creates a research-based poetic body of work investigating the devastating impact of colonialism, slavery and the global trade. In this episode, Alves will talk us through her projects that initiate conversations between environmental realities and social circumstances, touching upon the ongoing injustice against indigenous peoples of her native Brazil, questions of cultural repatriation, and about how in our times the line between the art and the activism organically and gradually blurs. Hi Maria Teresa, we are delighted to have you with us today, and would love to start from the very beginning. How was the social and political consciousness shaping and reflecting in you throughout your artistic practice? Well, um, there was the political situation. Uh, There was a military dictatorship in Brazil, uh, which resulted in my parents and my sister and I leaving. And then we get to the United States and they were there as immigrants and with parents working too many jobs, which are very low paid. Um, and my school life was horrible because the kids were extremely racist. I was going into um, a school that had a lot of Irish kids, a few Italians, one Greek, and then the rest of us. <laughs> and you know, I, they were not very nice people. Um, so that, uh, act, uh, that made me into a good organizer at the age of nine years old, because I found out that if you don't organize, uh, you get beaten very by very much by yourself. So, um, so that taught me a lot. And there was always the politically active members of my family that were educating me very uh, normally in a normal uh, day-to-day life. Um, and then when I was in high school, I was trying to figure out what I was going to study and what would be my contribution to Brazil. And at that time, there was no indigenous national organization there was much um, massacres at that time. Uh, situation hasn't changed much. And so I decided to join the International Indian Treaty Council of the American Indian Movement to learn how to make a national Indian organization. At the same time, I was an art student at, at the Cooper Union. Um, I was living in Harlem. I was in a squat apartment. Um, and I fought the city along with other people in the building for hot water and heat, which we didn't have. Um, then uh, I'm, there was uh, meetings and showing with artists such as Juan Sanchez, Ana Mandieta, uh, David Hammonds, Faith Rheingold, uh, Jimmy Durham, among others. Uh, we were all exhibiting at King Kaleba Gallery in the Lower East Side. And this was run by Corinne Jennings and Joe Overstreet. Uh, this was before museums were exhibiting these artists and when the art world was still very narrow in its definition of who could participate in the art discourse. So it was still very much a white male world. And so these people were um, beginning the d- discourse that now is a common discourse, but that was the beginning and we were talking to each other. And it was a very amazing time. 
Um, then in 1980, I founded the Brazil Information Center, it was an NGO to lobby for human rights. Uh, 84, I returned to Brazil to make uh, Recipes for Survival, which is a book on text, images, and poems. Um, I went to my father's uh, village and my, where my mother grew up, and I was one of the first in the family with a university education. And I said, I can read, I can write, I can take photos. So what do we tell the world about us? No? Uh, and then a bit later, I founded the, after I finished university, etc. I went back to Brazil and co-founded the Green Party in the state of Sao Paulo. And then I, after a few years working in the Green Party from abroad, um, I, I don't know, I thought um, I couldn't be actively involved in politics like this anymore. I had decided that my work as an artist could be of more interest to society than the political work. Because it's like all this energy that was being put into politics and it was like going into a sinkhole, you know, just like, just ate up all your energy. Um, so this was in the mid 90s and um, all, I had had all these experiences and they formed me as an artist and they continue to influence me and my work as an artist. Your journey sounds quite unusual. Your art has seeped frequently beyond spectatorship into collaboration, advocacy and political activism. As an artist and a dedicated activist, where do you draw a line, if at all? Um, I always find that question very interesting because there's these ideas of categories of being, you know, such as activist, artist, um, which is a rather recent European invention. I'm learning so, um, because I'm using my uh, now available time to read more on the history of Napoli, where I currently am in. Um, right now I'm reading about the Baroque and there were all these amazing thinkers who did not see themselves as engaged in one category. You know, there was one who was a lawyer and the director of the theater and wrote several books on different aspects of the theater, including uh, costumes. Um, there was Tommaso Campanella, the writer, he was a writer, a poet, a utopianist, a philosopher, a theologian, and a political activist. Let me say he was an active utopianist because he tried to uh, make heaven on earth and was, one and, and was imprisoned and tortured for 27 years. Um, there was a lot of torturing and imprisonment of intellectuals in Naples, lots. Um, so I think one should participate in one society to the best that one can for the betterment of the situation. And at times this can mean different things and all of us have different ways of contributing. For example, um, Ande Sornberg, he's a Sami from Norway. Um, he does this sometimes as a lawyer, sometimes as a judge, but he's also an amazing performance artist and Yoika singer, but he's also a professor of law, you know, and there's no categories. You do what is important at that moment to do because the situation demands it of you. Your astonishing project, Seeds of Change, uses plant life found in ballast, which is the waste material historically used to balance ships in maritime trade, to reveal the ongoing impact of colonialism, slavery, and global trade. In your other project, entitled The Fair Hair Trade, you have been investigating the questions of repatriation of cultural objects. How do you decide what to address? Okay, I think life does. It leads me into thinking um, for example, Seeds of Change came around, came about from seeing a, uh, a tool 
used in sampling a very small quantity. It's a tool this wide, very, very uh, narrow tool. And you just um, put it in the earth and remove a small sample, very small sample, and you study it. And I just really love this idea of dedicating so much time to studying this one little piece, this one little mound of earth. Uh, fair trade uh, had came about from reading about the French state's view on indigenous body parts. I have done several works on water. I very much like to work about water. Um, and it's from being on the land and looking at water in relationship to the land, in relationship to uh, one's relationship to the land and the water. Um, and usually the way I like to approach work is uh, by walking around and looking and seeing and um, waiting how to engage. The ongoing injustices against indigenous peoples of your native Brazil plays a central role in your practice. Can you tell us more about how do you communicate these pressing issues through your work? Um, I've been doing it through different projects. Uh, so, um, for example, there's a painting that will go to an ex it was in an exhibit in Sweden and Norway, I think. And now it goes to another exhibit. Uh, and it's called Sweet No Hildosi, uh, Sweet No More, uh, about the river in um, that was uh, in Minas Gerais, where um, uh, a dam with iron fillings broke and has contaminated the river forever. You know, so I have made a work there. Uh, right now, um, my latest work in Brazil is with um, with the Guarani members of the Jaguar Peru Reservation. Uh, I have. Uh, been in contact with the reservation since 1980. Uh, a great leader from the reservation, uh, Tupai, uh, was my mentor uh, when I was in, in high school, no, in, in, in art school. And um, he was assassinated in 1983. Uh, so it's a reservation that I work with. Uh, we collaborated, the last one, last time we worked together was just recently, we collaborated on a work for the Sydney Biennale. It's called uh, Maria's, it, my work was Maria's house and it was an installation based on the house of the only person uh, who would admit she was indigenous in my father's village. Because there are many others, but due to racism, um, many of us are just quiet. And we're not as courageous as she was. And so the work is dedicated to her. And part of the installation, um, there was a publication and it's the first Guarani language newspaper. It's translated into English and Portuguese in Daruk, the, the language in Sydney. And it's uh, titled Decolonization Continues. And it was edited by Keiurusu Katupere and Vera Poterisaka. And it's about racism by white settlers in the region of Dorados against indigenous peoples. So each time the work um, develops in a different way, according to the needs of the community, um, what I, what I think might be interesting in a discourse that is of interest to me at that time. And we try to see how we might work together. COVID-19 continues to spread in Latin America as we speak, and Brazil's indigenous peoples are at risk more than ever due to lack of Bolsonaro's government protection. How do you think the pandemic will be affecting the overall situation in long-term perspective? Well, the situation is always uh, critical in Brazil, um, for example, just some months ago, just like last year in September, I was part of a demonstration that blocked uh, a highway 
on the coast of Sao Paulo because Bolsonaro was going to remove, first he had tried to remove the doctors and nurses uh, from the reservations. You know, and these are only the big, big reservations that have this or else they have health workers. Uh, and there was a big fight and he lost. The next thing he does is try to remove um, transportation system because the reservations are in places that don't have easy access to transportation systems. So this reservation, for example, there is no bus that passes it after six or eight o'clock at night. So if you're sick, what are you going to do? Wait till the morning when the bus comes? So there is supposed to be a car available to pick up anybody that's sick in the middle of the night. So he wanted to get rid of this. And so then we have to make another demonstration, waste time and energy doing this. Um, I have indigenous students that I have involved in projects um, and they got the, they were, Bolsonaro tried to take their money away. They went on strike for like two semesters. All this time and energy and frustration and angst, you know, several of the students couldn't continue. They went back home because there was no money. Uh, and part of the work I do, um, I'm part of a design collective, Labinac, and we are working with indigenous craftspeople who make textile, ceramic, or jewelry. Um, and we pay, we purchase them, uh, a quantity, and then we sell them. And, and the profit from that is to be used for indigenous students in universities um, because of the situation. But right now it's, Nobody's buying anything, so it's a bit difficult <laughs> for this. Um, around the coronavirus in the Jaguapiru Reservation, it is uh, particularly worrying. Uh, it has um, a large population, very small land base, large population. Uh, land has been stolen from the community. Uh, it's more of a refugee camp situation uh, than a reservation. There's lack of water malnutrition, health issues, and which just is gonna further exasperate the whole situation. Um, so it is continued short-term and um, long-term genocide uh, practiced by the Brazilian government and Brazilian settlers, and it continues. We know that you have been deeply into ecology. How was this interest of yours born? Uh, the official seed was being born in um, the area which had been the Atlantic rainforest. Um, it's a forest that goes up the coast of Brazil. Uh, much of it is destroyed. Um, in Sao Paulo, let's say 98% of it is destroyed. And in the beginnings of colonization, it was deforested for coffee plantations, sugarcane plantations, uh, then cattle ranching, and now it's eucalyptus plantations. The product of this is toilet paper. It's like toilet paper. It's not even paper to write on. It's toilet paper. And of course, urban development. Uh, so some of the works I've done, I don't always do environment works about the environment or ecology, but um, uh, I have done many works. For, the first one was uh, Baja Bar in the Pantanal, which is in the swamplands in Mato Grosso, Brazil. Then there was uh, no, no, no Soy Su Madre, I Am Not Your Mother, in Mexico. Then uh, Chico Mendes, um, the Brazilian ecologist that was murdered. Uh, Chico Mendes, The Anti-Heroes and the Law of Gravity. Uh, there was Minus One Dimension, Zeneca Reflections in Brussels. It was about the river that disappeared. 
Deoteo de Ep and Senegal, about a cemetery for the burial of animals. Then Wake in Guangzhou, all the seeds coming to one place in Guangzhou. The Return of a Lake in Mexico, uh, which was in Documenta, and that is about a lake that had been uh, killed uh, by a Spanish uh, settler and was returning. And the more recent works was a, a proposal for syncretism, this time without genocide in Palermo. Uh, in, uh, especially in Latin America, there is, from, also from Mexico on down, there is much celebration of syncretism. Um, and I just see syncretism as um, a result of genocide. Uh, because syncretism is not something people do um, because they are in a process of joyfully having a discussion with somebody else from another place. Uh, in a colonial setup, it is done by force, uh, by one person having more power over the other, so that I find nothing interesting in syncretism, uh, except that it is uh, the clear um, representation of genocide. So and then there was the To See the Forest Standing, which was a new work with uh, funding so I could go to Brazil and meet with um, over 30 indigenous uh, forest agents who saved the forest with no, no salary and no, nothing except their bodies. I did um, the reintroducing the obliterated flora of the spray riverbank uh, in Berlin based on the PhD thesis of an uh, East Berliner who had studied one part of old Berlin that was then destroyed with the, when, the mural, when the wall came down. Uh, they started building and they didn't take care of this very old um, part that had the original vegetation of Berlin. And he knew it did and he went and met with the architect and said, it's there. And they didn't have to do much to save it, but they didn't. So I did a work about that. And most recently, Phantom Pain um, and Garrison Creek with the Toronto Biennale. And you will go away one day, but I will not for the Berlin Botanical Garden in collaboration with Lucrecia Dalt, Colombian musician. Uh, so these are the, some works I have been working on. And uh, for part two of your question um, about the environment changing, there has been changes. Like when I started with um, the Green Party in Brazil, we were trying to put bicycle lanes in. Uh, so we made a, a campaign for people, especially on the weekends, to go out on their bikes and, and, and walk and go around the city. And uh, the bus drivers uh, were hitting them to push them off the road and seriously injuring people. And we had to stop the campaign uh, because of this. And then we had to make a, a meetings with the bus drivers union and explain that it's not about taking their jobs away, it's about making the air more breathable for everyone, including them and their families. And uh, also the buses are always super full. A lot of people can't even get on, on them, so it wouldn't be damaging their salaries because there's always people that need to get on buses, especially since the distances in Brazil are, in Sao Paulo are immense. Um, I would travel like two hours to get to my job. And there's a lot of hills, so you can't wear, use bicycles everywhere. There's certain places you can. So there was a change, and then many interesting things came up. Um, but I, all these developments have taken a huge amount of efforts by many people. And then we come into the situation, which is terrifying in Brazil, to, uh, of, the local, of the current government. And I think it becomes unfeasible for 
the, uh, the environment situation, um, that we are always dependent on the heads of governments of individual countries that can swing a society to its death, to its death, as we are seeing, for the economic concerns of a few. And here we are in the 21st century, and this is happening. And, you know, and there were so many um, struggles to be able to change uh, laws and regulations in Brazil to, uh, make sh uh, to halt uh, deforestation. And one person can activate a situation that puts us in complete danger forever. The strategy of engagement is fundamental in your practice. You publish books, work with students, participate in talks and conferences. How important is the interaction with audience and what is the responsibility of the artist in informing the public? Um, the interaction with, I don't see it as audience, I see it as colleagues. No? Uh, so when I participate, when I work with, my, with students, I invite them to a workshop and then we figure out how to develop something. And then um, the last one that I did on um, decolonizing Brazil, I did a, a previous workshop and then the students liked it very much. And they said, there was one part of the workshop that um, I'm not going to talk about it because it's too involved, but there was a, an attempt to do something with the students for the future, but it was only if they wanted it. And they liked it very much. And then they said, yes, we want to do this book. And uh, which was amazing because uh, many of them, uh, Portuguese is a second language for one of them that's Portuguese was the eighth language. Uh, one who wrote a very great essay, she knew Portuguese one year, and she wrote an amazing essay. Um, so they're extremely brave students and I view them as colleagues uh, in engaging in situations. Um, about uh, the responsibility to inform the public. I don't think an artist has any responsibility with that. Um, if an artist thinks that she has something to contribute in that sense, then it would depend on the artist and on the specific public. Um, um, but I don't, I don't see Beethoven having a responsibility to talk about his work to a public. I probably wouldn't want Beethoven to talk about his work to a public because that would take time away from all the amazing things he could do as a, as a composer. So it depends. Over the past few years, we see a shift in conversations about contemporary art and social responsibility. The role of an artist has been called into question and redefined. What is the most effective way for artists to benefit societies at large? Uh, it really depends on what we mean by society. Um, is it a post-colonial, well-off European society? Is it a colonial settler genocidal society? Um, it's, and it's different situations that are demanding from each of us, whether we are an artist, a curator, a writer, a different response. And it's um, precise for the, for the moment. For example, I had talked earlier about Sombi, uh, the Sami uh, lawyer, if we had the Sami um, Renaissance person. Uh, he, I first saw his, him in a uh, performance where he was singing a yoika, uh, but also uh, making a performative work with a phone. So he was talking on the phone uh, in, in language that was very much lawyer language about a case um, and then he was singing, 
and he would put the phone down and would walk around and sing a yoika, a traditional yoika. And then um, what he was doing is he, it happened that he was the lawyer on a case against the Norwegian government where the, the Samis wanted um, their land in a certain area back. And the Norwegian government said, prove that you are the owner. I mean, really? Uh, and so they had songs that uh, proved that they knew their land. They could sing the song and that was the, would sing each part of their land. And then the Norwegian government said that song is not a document. And Sombi was part of the team, or he was the main lawyer, I don't know, who uh, won the case against the, against the Norwegian government, that song is a document. So then that they could then put their case to court. Um, and then he made his performance work about it. You know, so it's, like, it's two different ways to, to deal with the same situation. You know, just to go and sing and make a performative work in front of a judge in a Norwegian court is not going to change things. But to be a lawyer and to figure out how to make a strategy to introduce song as document is an amazing work. And then in the art world, well, to us, to hear about a law case is a bit difficult to, you know, but to, to do it as a performative work is an amazingly strong piece. So um, we have to react in different ways at different times and we have to think um, of what might be most important for that situation. It feels like the world is on pause right now. Many taking this uncertain times to reflect and reconsider their creative practices. Tell us, please, what are you working on at the moment? Is the current situation affecting your work in one or another way? And what's coming next for you? Okay. Uh, well, I'm taking time to think about uh, new outdoor pieces for Labinac, the design collective I'm part of. Uh, and I've been working on um, making new ceramic works because it's a perfect time to work with earth and water, right, in your studio and with your hands. Um, and I'm working with the collection of the Valle de Hico Community Museum, which I have collaborated with since uh, 2009. And it is a museum which saves indigenous artifacts in a town which has no interest in indigenous culture. Um, the local mayor, he closed it down in 2019. So the museum and the community has no access to the art in it. Um, I have been asked by the members of the museum to make the situation public. Um, so I um, have images of the collection because back in 2010, they asked me to take photographs of the collection. And I'm learning about ceramics by looking at these artifacts and making. So these are my teachers, are these um, artists, artists from different uh, regions of that uh, central Mexico from several thousand years ago. And it's very nice to see how um, an artist would uh, work with uh, the making of an arm, but as a fold. I'm learning uh, how to see in a different way. It's been very interesting. So um, I'm, I've made, I think, like 10 uh, objects from the collection. I made my favorite pieces. I know the collection very well because I photographed it. So I would like to ask others also to join in this effort so that we have images of us working and sh showing our support to the community. And these images can be then made public to the city officials. Um, because my idea is if they're seeing images from artists or people who are interested in different parts of the world, 
And we're looking at this collection, which has been closed for over a year with no reason. There's no reason given. Um, I think this will make an important impact. Um, so I will have more, inf I have uh, information on my website under Son del Pueblo of the people. It's called the work we're doing. And my website is my name and then .org. Um, about your other part of the question, um, there are, everything is postponed uh, or canceled. So the, um, my group exhibit at Migros was postponed, it's reopening, and then it travels to Baku. I don't know if it changes the date because of everything changed. I'm in the Sydney Biennale, it was open for a week and then closed uh, with the new work. Um, then I may, then I have a new work called Decolonizing Botany for an exhibit in the Builders Museum in Umeo. That also has changed date. Uh, there was a water conference that was to take place in Chile with the artist Cecilia Vicuña and Carolina Caicedo. Uh, we will develop it differently. We will not be going to Chile. Um, I had a work in the Sculpture Freeze exhibit, also canceled. Uh, I had a solo show of new glassworks in Venice, postponed. Um, I had a new work, The Way They Make War with the World, uh, to be exhibited in a traveling show in the U.S. and universities. It was up for a week, postponed. So time is very suspended and floating, and my mind starts to suspend and float a bit also. And then I try to look at birds and bees and flowers to get it back together. Global isolation and national lockdowns led to new social behaviors. Considering the word border now takes a whole new meaning, in your opinion, are we taking the direction towards xenophobia and nationalism or instead towards advancing the universal culture? Um, well, I think we all have our hopes and um, our fears, which are a bit clearer than we would want at this moment. Um, but the future is the future and, uh, and we don't know what can happen. So we remain with our hope and our fears. Beautifully said, Maria Teresa. Thank you very much for this insightful conversation. <laughs>